0: This is Dr. Lynn McPherson and welcome to Palliative Care Chat. The podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science PhD and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. A series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD In palliative care offered by the University of Maryland Baltimore.
1: Hello everyone. Welcome to another one of our University of Maryland PhD podcasts. My name is Connie Dolan, as you know, and I'm one of your faculty for the PhD program. I'm joined today by Dr. Lynn McPherson, who is the Executive Director of the University of Maryland Graduate Program in the Master's in Palliative Care program. And we are really honored today to be joined by Dr. Ira Byock. And many of you will be reading things and you'll see Dr. Byock's name. He has been in palliative care and hospice for many years. Um, He really was able to get us in a very good spot because he was able to work with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and um, run the Promoting Excellence in Palliative Care and End-of-Life Care, and um, from that created a lot of really good resources and a lot of collaboration between a lot of people. He's also written several books on Dying Well, The Four Things That Matter Most, and The Best Care Possible. Um, He has been all over the country, starting from Montana to New Hampshire, and now he's at California, um, because he's the founder and the chief medical officer of the Institute of Human Caring of Providence St. Joseph Health System. So we are very thrilled to have you, Dr. Bayak. Very
2: much. Hi, Connie. Hi, Lynn. (laughs) Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, we have are so excited for our students to be able to hear you and really hear your voice and your passion, because I think you can read about things, but then you don't really know where people are coming from. So I gave a very small snapshot about you and what you've done. And I would love to have you be able to sort of say, okay, this is who I am. This is what palliative care has meant to me and what my role has been, because I think people's own narrative is always more interesting than what we offer.
2: Thank you for asking. So um, let's see. Uh, I grew up in, on the Jersey Shore, so I, I tend to talk fast. Uh, and, and, you know, Lynn and I get along very well together. Mm. So we can complete each other's sentences. Uh, I, um, um, I went to medical school in 1974, the University of Colorado, thinking I was going to be a rural family doc. Um, I was sure of it. I went, I picked a residency program that trained for rural family medicine, cradle to grave, everything, right? Uh, and I did that too. I, I went to um, a residency in Fresno, California, uh, part of the UCSF system, but I, it was very dedicated to small town rural uh, practitioners. Um, in, I started residency in, in 1978. And I quickly realized, I was deeply proud of the hospital I trained in. We gave great care. It was a safety net county, busy county hospital. Um, uh, I was quickly aware that there was kind of a lacuna of excellence um, around people who were acknowledged to be dying. Somehow they quite literally were down the hall in the hospital. And somehow there was this sense that we didn't have much to do for them and they got less attention. And, and that seemed to me to be both a, an odd lapse in our commitment to excellence and it's sort of a social justice issue. Like, you know, like when did they stop mattering? And I, I helped found a little fledgling hospice program in this county, you know, medical center, with kind of liaison with with um, uh, uh, county health nurses and uh, and and a nurse from Mid Surge and. Uh, uh, I I was the medical director, but uh, but I was an intern and early resident, and I had a faculty oncologist who was nice enough to kind of back me up, and there was a social work student that was my collaborator, Kim Doherty, and we developed this little hospice program, and I got really deeply involved, not by intention, because this was really not my main focus at all, um, but but in addition to preventing people from waiting six or more hours in the emergency debar- department to get their tie threes refilled or know with codeine's refilled or meeting people in the ed who were being admitted for rule out bowel obstruction when if you took a careful enough history usually in spanish found out that they were just constipated for the last two weeks and literally hadn't had a bm and now sure they look like they had a bowel obstruction but you know um, that's what we sort of developed this to do, or, or, or make sure that the county health nurses could find them in the vast central Valley of California, because they might move from one family member's home to another. And there was no way of, of cluing in the, the, uh, uh, public health nurses, all of that. We did all that. What, what seduced me to what has become this field is that every once in a while I'd meet somebody who knew they were dying because I'd had the conversation with them myself. But if I asked them, how are you doing today, Mr. Rodriguez? Look me straight in the face and say, I'm well, doctor. How are you? Well, how do you get, how are you well if you know you're dying and your liver is full of colon cancer? You know like, and And I usually quip because it's true. Uh, When I first heard something like that, I thought, well, it's the morphine, you know, or it's the prednisone I have them on. Right. Um, But but I heard it not often, but just occasionally and enough that I had to realize that I had no idea what that meant. Or a family would come back after the death of their mom, the matriarch of the family, and just thank us and bring us cookies or something and say, you know, when when you told us that mom was dying, it was the worst thing we could imagine. But, you know, this last month has been remarkable. It's been some of the best time we've ever had. I couldn't explain that to myself. And I was honest enough to know I couldn't. So I went along, and and I'm coming to your point to the point, I promise. But I went along and and did my family practice for a while, ended up leaving it and doing emergency medicine and getting bored in an emergency medicine. But along the way, I was always doing a little hospice work. I went, I changed communities a couple of times, but I was always volunteering to stand up a little hospice program. And then I started sitting on committees and and uh, going to conferences and NHO, National Hospital Organization was just forming. And, you know, and, and anyhow, I was just, I have an unwholesome predilection for committee work, apparently, and w- did that. And, and this field, from my perspective, stuttered as it formed. There were at least three attempts to get doctors to form a standing committee or organization um, but we met together occasionally at national meetings where we, we've ultimately came together together at, you know, at, at Lake Granby in the mountains or in, in, uh, uh, Rocky mountain, um, um, at Ro- Rocky mountain park, um, a few years. And we were like a support group because in our own communities, we were, we were oddities you know when i in 1970 1980 i was at a might have been 1981 1981 i think i was at an emergency medicine conference and and uh, standing up around a tabletop having drinks with uh, people after the meeting at all docs er docs and and uh, and, say, and somebody asked, "Well, what are you doing?" And I said, "Well, I'm doing half time emergency medicine, and half of the time I'm trying to uh, develop this board of directors for this fledgling hospice program I've helped start in Fresno, California, and uh, I, you know, just trying to get it on its feet." And and one of the docs literally took a step back and said, "Hospice? Why would a doctor do that?" That's where this started. It started as a support group trying to talk with one another as docs. A lot of old farts, um, many of whom are are have retired that had the good sense to retire. But around a literal campfire um, in in uh, in the Rockies, I can remember with wine and beer having conversations about. know what the future might look like wouldn't it be cool if one day there was actually a textbook about hospice like care Uh, wouldn't it be cool if they actually taught some of this stuff you know i mean wouldn't it be cool if there were like you know departments or professorships or something i mean and then, people, then we would laugh and we'd say, well, you know, but really what we're trying to do here, it's really just good care. I mean, I don't know if there's a specialty here. I mean, you know, talk to people, find out what matters to them, make sure they're not in pain and they're not constipated. That, that's a specialty, right? Scroll forward. Like, you know, we talked about the first time I heard the phrase wagging the dog was around that campfire. Wouldn't it be cool if in caring well for people at the end of life, we actually wagged the dog of the healthcare system, explaining that you could actually take care of whole persons. When I'm scrolling forward now, what, like 40 some years, I'm actually wagging that dog within my health system, the Institute for Human Caring, maybe we'll get to, but we're kind of wagging the dog.
0: Mm. That's quite a story. So I first encountered
2: Dr. Ira
0: Bayek when everybody was talking about this book called Dying Well. So I ordered a copy and I got it. And I remember reading it over Mother's Day weekend in bed while I had the flu. And my husband said, you are one sick puppy. I said, probably so. Uh, but I sure enjoyed it very much. So tell us about your other books you've written, Dr. Biak.
2: Oh, uh, boy. So I, I wrote Dying Well, which begins, it's a, it's a story-driven book, begins with my dad's story, uh, Seymour Bayok. Um, and, and, and if you read it today, I, I hope you see that the stories are built around a, a kind of a, a conceptual framework of human development that, you know, dying well, how can you be well within yourself as you're dying? It's not just dying well as an adverb like dying right or dying in a, a skillful way, but it's, can a person be well as they're dying? Can you die well? Um, so there's that. Um, I um, Every talk I gave for many, many, many years, I had uh, talked about the five, saying five things before, you know, uh, as you're dying. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. Goodbye. I lost count of the number of times people came to me after and said, oh, I love loved your lecture, loved those five things, but you know, you don't have to be dying to say those things. And I'd very politely say, you're right. And then after a while, and it took several years, I realized I say that a lot to people. I mean, I had that same conversation innumerable times. And I said, so you don't have to be dying. So maybe there's a book here for the general public called something like uh, saying four things before goodbye. Because even if you don't get to goodbye, if you just said those four things, then if you die suddenly, you know there's nothing critically important left unsaid. Your relationship is kind of complete, in the sense of a circle is complete if it's unbroken, right? So, um, about five or six years after Dying Well came out, I decided I'm gonna I'm gonna write a book for the general public, drop a, a grade level or reading level or two. And just tell stories, real stories about people who somehow used one or more of these kind of, you know, expressions of asking for forgiveness, offering forgiveness, gratitude, and love, um, whether or not they had a chance to say goodbye. Okay, and then but there's good. Anyhow, it was called um, the four things before goodbye. Um, And then as it was going to press, quite literally. I got this frantic call from my editor who said, we have to get goodbye out of the title. I said, why? He said, well, the, the marketing people said that if goodbyes in the title, it's going to end up on the death and dying ghettos of the bookstores way down, you know, and nobody's going to, you know, and I said, but but goodbye, there's a chapter, uh, there's a whole, you know, section on goodbye and, good, and saying four things before goodbye is that phrase is woven around through the book. She said, yeah, yeah, it can stay in the book. It just has to come out of the title. So it became <laughs> the four things that matter most. Um, um, and then a lot of things happened. Um, as as Connie, you mentioned, I was asked by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to um, lead this remarkable grant and technical assistance program called Promoting Excellence in End of Life Care from they they knocked on my door in ninety six. We stood it up in, late 97. It ran through about 2006. We gave away, I don't know, $25 million or so. And most of it um, in model building, in standing up prototypical models of what what early on we were calling hospice-like care integrated within mainstream healthcare. And what we did was basically stand up mostly hospital-based palliative care programs. Now we would call those palliative care programs. That those were the prototypes, right. uh, with with taking away the terrible choice. There was no. It was like the avocado with no pit. You know, you can get your cancer treatment, or your card failure treatment, or your specialty pediatric care, and you get an interdisciplinary team to listen, to align goals, to attend to your emotional, social, spiritual well being, your physical well being as well, and your family's well being. And we found that people felt better. Sometimes it seemed like they were living longer and costs went down rather than up with all this lavish care. Why? Because people spent more time at home and less time in the hospital. So that was pretty brilliant. And we did some other stuff with, with Promoting Excellence. But um, And then I went to Dartmouth and uh, uh, was running the palliative care program there. And, and along the way, um, you know, healthcare transformation is in the water at Dartmouth. I mean, it's everywhere. Jack Wenberg was there, Elliot Fisher's there, and so many are now Amber uh, uh, Barnetto is there, and um, you know, and I wrote The Best Care Possible, which again is a story-driven book about how what we do in palliative care is really a template for value-based care writ large that you can actually attend to giving the very best care to people, aligning what we do with what matters to them, their priorities, and do so in a way and really meet their needs and do so in a way that meets their needs but doesn't always require them being in a hospital Or getting the most tests and treatments, it's you know that phrase the best care possible is what literally everybody wants, but what it means is very different from one person to another because quality care ultimately isn't medical; it's it's personal. Illness isn't medical; illness is personal. So you can give people the very best care. Um, how can I say this? I don't know what it is from one person to another, but I know how to determine what it is for every person. And that's what I wrote about, again, mostly through stories. So that's the last book was the best care possible.
1: Well, and I think, you know, um, what's been interesting for me, Ira, is that um, I've been trying to help people kind of frame where we are and kind of think about the future and looking at some of the things. And, and so one of the things that was a little bit interesting for me is, um, you know, we had the 1997 IOM report, right? And then you have the 2014 IOM report. And really, it's a lot of life, right? right? Um, maybe advanced care planning, maybe not. And I was sort of chuckling, because I'm like, why is everybody so excited? Because we still have a lot to do. Um, and I also think about, um, you know, the Commonwealth report from 2018, which really spoke to how much of a financial burden getting sick was, you know, this whole health um, disparities, health inequities part. Um,
2: and Family think- caregiving as its own diagnosis, because... because if you're a family caregiver, you're at high risk.
1: Right. And then we still haven't kind of looked at this whole part about health care, because we have illness care, we don't have health care. And, you know, um, I think also of just about, you know, we keep saying, okay, health care reform, but we've been saying that for 10 years. And so, you know, what are we, I guess we're sort of in the middle, we keep thinking we're moving towards something. But I'm not I, you know, I, I think that we get stalled, and then you know, the last part about that is that my own thought is, you know, for ten years we were so hopeful in 2010. I think it was our moment. You know, the ACA had been passed, and we we're all that. Ah. And it's ten years, and Pachita still hasn't gone there, and people are still focused. And I'm like, okay, maybe we need to think about new strategies, and what do we need to think about moving forward? And yes, there's there's more to this palliative care part than just the clinical anymore, because we've got to be more innovative, and we've got to think more about What's going on in the world? So, big question of like, what? How do you take all that piece and kind of think forward?
2: Huge void of leadership, clinically and culturally. I mm. um, uh, really appreciated your framing. Um, Congress isn't leading; it's it's in the way of leadership. It is it is, you know, reinforcing the status quo, and and I could get party political here, but I, I'll try to avoid it. But, um, you know, but nothing is happening. There is, there is some leadership, but you kind of have to look for it. But whenever I recognize a serious void in leadership, I, I think, well, there's an opportunity to fill it. Right. And, and some of the, um, I see some voids in leadership right now that our field could be filling um, clinically and culturally, mm-hmm. and we're not uh, yet, or we're not enough. Um, but I, I think we still, you know, we still think like, oh well, we need a law. We need a. We have to go to Congress. How many years do you have to live through this to realize that's not going to happen? It, leadership. If you're waiting for Congress for change, you know you should be depressed, <laughs> it ain't happening. So, but 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 you can move things f- forward in other ways. Um, uh, I could, I should probably shut up there, but. Uh,
1: well, but I think for our students who are listening to this, it would be helpful for you to kind of say, so where are the areas of void that we sh- should be having them think as leaders of palliative care of stepping in? What sure. are some of the things that they need to do? Because I think we need to, you know, I think of so much of how we used to focus on what was good care and pain management and and figuring that out. And we have, I think we have a better place of it now. Yes, I know we have an opioid crisis. Yes, I know um, we have some whole other issues, but I think the science of pain management, we have much better, right? We have the whole sense of this interdisciplinary team. So I think sometimes why i'm asking this question is we default to the clinical and it's like okay we got it we, we have that let's let's now move the whole piece up and say okay what's the new technologies we need to think about because we focused a lot of things on cancer and we had to quickly pivot because of um, the hiv crisis and now you know COVID has pushed us now what's another thing for reimbursement that people Really need to understand. Like, you can't be naive anymore. The heart and the dollars have to go together anymore. You know, um, you know. What's the whole part about helping people understand? Okay, so if we can't get Congress, what are the policy things? That's what I think students need to hear because they don't know enough to even know where to step in.
2: Okay, here we go. <laughs> so, um, things that keep me up at night include. Okay. Um, Well, uh, let me step back before I launch into the particulars and say um, another thing that's happened since those IOM reports is that the profit motive has once again shown itself to be utterly pernicious and toxic in healthcare. Um, um, I worry about hospice care. I used to be able to say, well, you know, to a friend or relative who called uh, from, you know, middle America, um, my, my aunt's sick and she's having a lot of pain. What should I do? Get her to a hospice program. Now I have to say, you know, I'll look online and find out what hospice programs you have to choose from and tell me your aunt's uh, health plan and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll try to help you find a hospice program and da, 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 da. Um, but the but the profit motive has eroded. Uh, we we politely say uh, the quality of hospice care is variable. Yes, but mostly it's problematic um, because the majority of hospice programs are um, are deficient now, um, and it's not just the for-profit programs uh, that that's simplistic. It, it it is. I think it is the investor-owned for-profit programs, right? Those that are traded. uh, That's a problem. Uh, Some of the best hospice programs I know of are wholly owned family, you know, family owned programs or individually held programs, and they're, they're superb. Uh, But in general, uh, I would, if I have to choose one of the, one of the quality criteria that I look at is that I ask people about their hospice programs are who owns it? Because if it's traded on wall street, I know that they're sucking margin out of quality and it's reflected in caseloads, in staffing, in whether you can see a hospice physician in, and I'll come to this, what, your, what the emergency plans are. Uh, so that's a, that's, a, that's a framing. One of the things that keeps me up at night uh, is the quality of um, uh, response uh, to... Um, to critical situations among hospice programs and and even uh, palliative care patients, particularly if they're not in the hospital, um, the uh, the crescendo symptoms. Somebody, you know, infarcts their bowel or starts seizing or having severe dyspnea, what are we doing? What do you do then, right? And I've seen that erode. And I, again, I'm now, I was trained as a family doc, but I was an ER doc for a very long time. And, uh, and as an ER doc who does palliative care, I wanna know if I can give the first dose in the home of what I would give in an ambulance or in the ED, if somebody is seizing or having crescendo pain or uh, agitated delirium. And if the answer is, well, you know, you call the hospice nurse. She calls back. Um, if it's really bad, she goes out and makes a an evaluation. Then she finds a doctor who would prescribe something. You find a pharmacy that's open. You get somebody to go get it. Come back. Sorry, if that's the case, put somebody in an ambulance and get them to the ED. Right? We could, and I and I've developed them. I've even published about this, but I've developed you know these. Uh, uh, crisis packs and protocols in the home that have tiny vials. They're very cheap. IV meds are very cheap. or Injectable meds uh, of this of the first dose of the exact medications you get in the ambulance or ED um, that you can give sub Q in the home for these for these problems. The opioid crisis has made that we we were getting traction about you know disseminating some of that with with um, um, disposal being a challenge, but there's technology for disposal now that makes that easier. Um, But the opioid crisis made that go away. And now, where is the leadership? Who is speaking for the patients and the families in their homes for these crises? Because I I have a website and people write me directly, and I can tell you that things do go bump in the night and, and this is as an industry, the Academy, HPNA, NHPCO, we should be asserting leadership to fix this problem. It's a solvable problem. We're not. So that keeps me up at night.
1: You know, I, I think, you know, Ira, one of the things that uh, is my thought, um, and I'm gonna throw this out to you, um, You know, when I do, okay, hospital crisis, you get, and you know, stuff changes, right? That's the nature of a hospital, right? You're in a clinic, you know, when I would have my patients, like I knew I would see those patients in what order who knows? But, you know, I was one of those practitioners that said, okay, I'm going to figure out where people are. If they're in a private room, I have a little leeway. My ALS patients, they're not going to have to come over. I'm going to go find them, whatever, right? So I knew that if it was hard for me, it was actually better patient care. We are still on this nine to five health care. And we wonder why, you know, the urgent clinics, the minute clinics, whatever, are popular. But to your point, families don't, can't afford to take the time off right things do happen after hours and we've set up a system that is like well 9 to 5 you're fine after that it's you know it's all up in the air but more than that you know i've been working with my state and we did a survey and we were trying to look at community based palliative care not hospice and what the responses were is we don't want to have responsibility for these patients 24/7 it's like but if you're trying to keep them home and then you have to, like that's part of the care. And so there was a real disconnect about um, almost putting in the time and effort to be patient and family-centered. Thoughts?
2: Well, I, I'm, I'm th- th- this is part of my day job, um, big part of my day job, is to meet people's needs with, including people with complex needs without forcing them to come to the ED or or be admitted. Because of the shift from volume to value, which we thought was gonna happen quickly after the ACA was passed, um, but it's still happening. Because of that shift, there's actually a business case, a value proposition for doing what you and I, all three of us have been trying to do for years. Finally, it, it is, there's a business case. And so within the health system that I work in now, Providence Health System, and I it's not just Providence, it's it's any progressive forward-thinking health system. We're trying to move from volume to value. And, uh, you know, to a certain extent, I'm swimming downstream finally in in trying to say, how can we build new models? How can we design our delivery models so that we genuinely meet people's needs. They're getting better care. We're just not forcing them. It's mostly, not to be oversimplified, but it's mostly where the area under the curve of acute, of acute care has to drop. You don't have to say no to somebody going to ED or the hospital. You just have to keep that to as as low as possible. If they're in the hospital and you already have a relationship with them, you can get them out of the hospital faster. Right. Do it at home. Finish the antibiotics at home. Do the physical therapy at home, right? And that's all good. You know, a lot of what I do, I point out, we're showing that there's, even under DRGs, you know, uh, uh, there's a business case for getting people out of the hospital sooner, a big business case. But also I, I point out, you know, the other metrics that our health system cares about is um, is falls in the hospital. Um, um, catheter-related infections, uh, central line-related infections. These are the metrics the quality people look at, you know, every month, right? Well, uh, you know, if you can get somebody home three or four days earlier, it's harder to fall in the hospital if you've been home for two days, right? It's it's hard to get a Claudy uh, cla- or a Clasby if you if your lines are out and you're and you're getting sub Q medicines at home or taking it orally, you know, so there's actually a business case for all this. And people sleep better at home and they eat better at home and they eliminate better at home and they walk around more and you have to monitor it. But, but
1: so the flip side of that though, what I would say that I see is, and you must see this or have seen this, like um, because of DRGs, the person gets admitted, the, the case, the discharge planner is already starting But they haven't thought about what are going to be the needs that meet the patient. It's going to be what gets the patient out of the hospital. Two different things, right? Very. And I think, you know, for my years of palliative care, you know, for some of the floors, they did not like me because I would say, I see you have a discharge plan, but let's talk about if this discharge plan is going to be successful. Because my goal is to do the right discharge the first time. Right, and um, and you know, what would play into that? You know, you have somebody who may not live the way you and I choose to, but they're doing quite fine. And they've told us they don't really wanna interact with the, with the healthcare system, right? But they're doing quite fine. And then we deem them unsafe, which just is so mean, right? And then when they disagree, they get a psych consult. But if they agreed, they don't get the psych consult. I mean, like this whole construct of, um, how we honor patients and families based on what they want versus what we want. It's really been, its it, as you can imagine, sometimes it's just really so frustrating to watch. And it's like, this is not healthcare. This is, I don't know what it is.
2: And it, in a value-based system where the deliverers of care, the delivery organizations also own financial risk for the total costs of care, the discharge planners will eventually get the message that having the person bounce back in a week or two wasn't successful. That, that's not actually, that doesn't look like success anymore for, from our, you know, the metrics have to change to align with what you're trying to do, which is, again, part of my day job these days is, Uh, at the Institute for Human Caring, we're helping our health system measure things that actually matter in a value-based way. And it's uh, all aligned with better care for the patient and the family. It's What we're doing is taking the knowledge, attitudes, and skills of palliative care and driving change through the health system. We're wagging the dog.
1: Right. And then, but I think about, though, what that also has to happen is, is you and I both know the whole way the system has been done, like even the way that we have shifts, right? Like who made up those times? We picked those off of factories, right? I mean, so and, and we have sort of figured this part out, but it's not about what happens in people's real lives and the right. timing, right? So, I mean, if you think about what people really need is we actually need to overstaff in the evenings and on the weekends because that's when things happen, but that's when we don't. And so it's just really interesting when you start looking at that because then, you know, when I talk to some of my colleagues who are in the workforce, it's a real mix of saying we're going to have to even change how we think we work. Um,
2: so interesting. You know, the so interesting. Yes, yes, with exclamation points including our palliative care programs
1: yeah absolutely I think they're primary
2: all right you know in within within my health system you know um, well my stock I think is high again but there was a while there where the palliative care teams were not happy with dr. Bay because we were showing them you know metrics their own data about you um, um, their performance, including um, what days of the week they see patients. And, you know, we're, some of the metrics are on uh, uh, seeing uh, consults, palliative care consults, within the first two days of hospitalization, basically within the first Medicare day, before the second midnight, right? right. And if you see patients before the second midnight, uh, as opposed to patients you see any time thereafter, their their um, lengths of stay in the hospital are, are somewhere between four and six days shorter. Wow. When you when you see patients during the plan of care being developed, they they spend less time in the hospital. We've done this four years in a row. It is it is remarkable what a difference that is. Okay, but you, it's harder to see people in the in that first Medicare day if two sevenths of the week. You're not seeing them at all, right? right? And so we were showing this to our palliative care teams, and man, there were a lot of people well, who elected you've got and what, what you know what what we we've been doing this just fine, and our patients are doing blah 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 blah, you know. And I'd have to gently say, you know, I get it, man. I, I I've done it too. I you know I, but it's not about us. It's never been about us it's always been about them so you know one way or the other we have to staff up i'm not saying you have to do this with your current staffing we're going to we're going to go to battle with the with with the cfo's to show them that there's a business case for staffing up but but this has to be on your strategic plan you got to see patients 7 days a week somebody has to answer the phone at night sorry it's got got to happen we're now we're now beyond that and we've done battle with the CFOs. And so everybody's staffing up across Providence. And if anybody listening here wants to look for, you know, a work for a system that really gets it, think about us, but we are staffing up and we're all going to seven days a week because it's so obviously... What we need to do.
1: Well, and I would even say I mean, I do think hospices had it right when they were saying the ones who are more progressive, you know, have that liaison team from four to 10, right? and getting people home and getting their questions. Same thing for palliative care. Um, and you know, I'm one of the ones who I would say my colleagues, my APRN colleagues were not happy with me because I sort of felt like I needed to step in and create a role for the APPs to take weekend call as much as the physicians. And knew it was the right thing, tried to say to the hospital, you're not even capturing my costs. So by doing this, I'm gonna show you how many people I'm seeing you're losing revenue on. right." Um, But that was new and they were and I was told, you know, academic hospitals sometimes are like the Titanic. It's really hard to change them. You can do smaller ones. But I just think that we have, you know, this whole part of we have a whole bunch of millennials and, you know, we're going to have Gen Zers. I mean, this whole thing about work and where I, I kind of wonder if that will be one of the biggest things that changes about healthcare because this this nine to five just feels so constrictive. And then we get upset when the minute clinics or whatever. And it's like, they're there, right? You know, the CVS down the street here is 24 seven and they have weekend clinic that. So if I can't see them for palliative care, they're going to go there. And we get upset about that, but it's like, have we? what have we done to facilitate that? So it's, it's just interesting, I think, you know when you think about that, um, and then sort of thinking about some of the, again, when you're talking about the value part, the whole part about if you, to, we're gonna have to turn everything on its head, because again, for the hospitals, and I think for some of my physician colleagues, the incentive has been, if you do a procedure, that's how you bring in money. And that is so pervasive, right?
2: Yeah, it's changing quickly, but it's but it's still there. Um, and the CFOs, I mean, there are CFOs who get it and understand value-based care. And there are CFOs who th- still think it's heads in beds. I wanna, I wanna have my hospital full. I wanna have my procedure rooms full, you know. And if you're not contributing to that and you're not booking RVUs, you know, you're a part of the problem. You know, um, we're showing them. With their own data, that there's an alternative, and that frankly, you know, if you if you continue on the path that you're at, you're going to go out of business, or some somebody else is going to buy this organization because you're going to be losing money. Um, I, I want to before we close, I want to I want to turn attention to something. I'm I'm still about well-being through the end of life. Another thing that keeps me up at night well, several things is uh, that palliative care in the hospital is being sold and palliative care is being monetized through some, of, some you know, organizations that have gone profit for profit as ways of getting people out of the hospital. And it both is, but it shouldn't be a way of skimping, right? Uh, it's not the end all. It just happens to get people out of the hospital quicker because that's where they want to be. They want to be at home and and the and 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 you avoid some of the complications of being in a hospital, the iatrogenic complications by getting them home. But um but in its fullness, as it was developed by Dame Sicily and all of us in the earlier days, it was about. Um, alleviating symptoms and suffering and promoting well-being, com- promoting quality of life. I think the, the, the cultural leadership that we have as a, as a health, as a specialty, as a discipline to um, bring to the larger culture is that human well-being is possible through the very end of life. That doesn't mean that dying doesn't suck. Dying sucks, right? Yes. But concomitant with all of the arduous nature of illness and caregiving and dying, well-being is concomitantly possible for many, many people, more so than I ever thought possible. And, And even in their caregiving and in their concomitant grieving, there is the ability for people to feel that they a sense of well-being that this is hard this is awful and yet it's also wonderful to be to be strengthening the sense of family to be caring for mom or dad you know we can become closer together i'm not in any in any sense diminishing or romanticizing this at all believe me i'm an old er doc right i get it it sucks but it's possible for people to grow through this. And, and I know it's possible, not only because of what I've seen and the stories I've written about and told. Um, occasionally, I'll get a call from, from uh, a widowed man or woman and say, and who says, you know, Ira, I, I, I think, I don't know if I'm in denial or something, but, but you know, it's only been four weeks since you know, my spouse died, and I'm feeling pretty good. I, I, I like, I miss her or him, but I'm feeling okay. And when I, either I know that person, and I know what happened, or I asked some clarifying questions. And it was like, yeah, because there was nothing left undone. You know, you honored and celebrated your wife as she was leaving this life. Wow. So yeah, it doesn't surprise me, you know. Complicated grief is is all about would haves, could haves, what ifs, should haves, you know, all of that. If you've really done it, it didn't have to be easy. But if you've done it and there's nothing left undone, there is a sense of well being. Because Anyhow, if you're
0: dying well, right?
2: You can die well. <laughs>
1: And what's your other worry? What's your other worry? You said you had a couple more.
2: Well, I worry about emergencies. I worry about the profit motive. I worry about, um, you know, um, Capsi recently, uh, and I love Capsi. We're a member, ardently support them, and I love Diane. She's been a friend forever, and um, but I'm I have a different opinion, a different take on Capsi's uh, market research and their strong emphasis on not saying the word dying, not connecting us with hospice. Um, You know, I have a, I'm, I'm just about exactly opposite. If we're not, if we're not going to provide cultural leadership around integrating illness and dying and caregiving and grieving within a frame of full and healthy human life, who possibly else could do that? This is part of why we exist. So I, I, I respectfully uh, disagree. Uh, I don't think their research, that market research is very strong and I disagree with the conclusions they've drawn. I think it is us, part of the work that we do has to be a, a fostering cultural maturation. It's time for us to grow the rest of the way up as an American culture and integrate these difficult times, these unwanted times, these inherently sad times within our notion of full and healthy human life.
0: So it must make you crazy, the places that have even moved further away from not only hospice, but the word palliative care and gone into supportive care for fear of what the meaning of hospice and palliative care represents.
2: Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a little bit foolish. I don't, I, I've, it, stopped, it has stopped bothering me as much um, it is. It depends on what you have to do to get into that program. If you have to be dying to get into the supportive care program, in two years, the oncologist will say, don't mention supportive care when you're in the room, right? right? Um, it depends what it is. You could call it the rainbow program, but if it was a wink, wink, send me the patients who are dying, they'll say in two years, don't say rainbow when you're in the room. When I was at Dartmouth, we took the the other stance. We said, we're going to change the meaning of what palliative care means at Dartmouth. It doesn't mean you're dying. It means that you need and deserve an extra layer of support and another team involved to meet your and your family's needs. I mean, I had the same thing said to me. We can't say the word pal. Please don't say palliative. You know, I I was in clinic with an oncologist who is a friend. And I said, Mark, you're telling me not to say palliative care, but you know we're we're meeting here in the cancer center. You want to scare the shit out of somebody? Just say the word. Can't you have cancer to them? Why don't we rename the cancer center the the odd little bump center? Because we could scare the daylights out of people. Why don't we just say, you know, you need the best care possible, and Dr. Black and his team will provide you a layer of service that you really need and deserve right along with you, whatever you decide, whatever happens. And that's what we did. And it really lost its sting.
0: Good. Good. So any last advice for our graduates as they go forth? Psilocybin for everybody, what's your best shot? (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> you have to have me back for the psilocybin discussion totally by the way i worry about i think psilocybin has the potential of being transformative and remarkable in alleviating people's suffering fostering well-being but i worry about the profit motive mm-hmm. we will find a way to screw this up
0: yeah yeah if we're
2: not really careful mm-hmm. it has to be done carefully
1: Definitely. But other things for people who are entering into the field or that you want our students to be thinking of, because this is, this is you know, they're going to be the leaders and we hope the next generation. You know, what are your thoughts for them going forward?
2: Um, have a centering practice, um, meditate or pray or do silent distance running. Don't listen to the podcast while you're running or something, throw, throw clay pots, whatever. But you need a centering practice. Um, you, the best way to protect against burnout is to bring your whole self to the clinical encounter and allow yourself... You'll feel drained at times, but allow yourself at other times to be filled up by the incredible privilege and opportunity to, to come into intimate relationships with people you know as patients or families and allow yourself to be, to, to, to be gratified and filled up by that. I think burnout happens not because of the sadness or stress of the work, but mostly because uh, from being under supported or under resourced in doing this work. If you're, If you're working within a team and you've got sufficient staffing and you, you feel supported and you can, you can consistently provide the best care possible from your own internal sense of what that means. Um, um, you know, you'll still need weekends, not on call and, and vacations, but you can, you can, you can go the duration. You can do this for a very long period of time because, you know, you can allow yourself to be resourced and filled up. And, and, and so, if you're, feeling, if you're feeling burned out, um, consider that you may be working for the wrong organization or not getting the support you need, uh, or you're not able to bring your whole self to the clinical encounter, so you're not available to be filled up as well as, be, as serving.
0: You know how people who work in this field look around and they look at nurses and doctors and say, Would I like that nurse to take care of me or that doctor to take care of me or someone I care about? Dr. Bayak, you check all the boxes for me, Boo Boo. You're the best.
1: (laughs) Uh, Thank
2: Thank you. you Thank you, Lynn. Yeah,
1: no, this has been really helpful because I think, you know, you've done a really lovely balance of of kind of thinking about where we've come from and how it it really directs to the future um, and whether people don't like to have the historical context or not, we have to have it because that's what's going to help us think about what are some of the rabbit holes we want to avoid or some of the lessons that we, you know, have learned um, that is like okay let's be let's think differently this time. Um, so I mean I think that there's just so much um, there's still so much more and I think with its next evolution you know to watch is really great and I think that you have. Um, in in your different iterations. And when you think about some of your different books, you've really helped people kind of think about some of the different areas. Um, And that really, in the end, it is all about the human connection and each of us as an individual. So thank you for that. And thank you for all your work in the field. And thank you for um, sharing this time with Lynn and I, we feel-
2: Such such a pleasure.
1: Yeah. Now go write that
0: fourth book on self-care.
2: Well, (laughs) I was was just going to say that I, I think you're- your students are lucky to have you. We're all lucky to have you. Thank you for involving me. I hope I hope I get to meet uh, some of your students uh, in the in the years ahead as colleagues. Um, thank you, those watching. Thanks for doing this work and and choosing this field. It's it's deeply rewarding, tough, you know, um, poignant, wrenching at times, and and so deeply rewarding. So thank you all.
0: Thank you Dr. Bayan.
2: Thank you. Ira,
0: I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson and this co- presentation is copyright 2021 University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science PhD and graduate certificate program in palliative care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.